Welcome to Leveraging the Laboratory, a Mayo Clinic Laboratories podcast for administrators, outreach managers, and laboratory professionals to learn how best to leverage and optimize the laboratory for patients, clients, and staff. I'm your host, Jane Hermanson, Outreach Manager at Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Joining me today is Shannon Bennett, Director of Quality and Regulatory Affairs for the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology for Mayo Clinic. And our discussion topic today is the complex and ever-changing world of laboratory industry regulations. Shannon, this is your annual visit to our Leveraging the Laboratory podcast. Tell me a little about yourself today and the role that you have within Mayo Clinic. Sure. So my team is largely involved with interacting with regulatory agencies and accrediting agencies. So that would be College of American Pathologists, New York State Department of Health, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. And so we really help our laboratories understand the requirements that those various groups have for laboratory testing. So when we want to know what's going on with the world regulations, you and your department are really the ones that we go to and lean on for guidance so that we don't have to actually interpret them ourselves. Right. So Shannon, when I think about the stuff that's been going on just in the last year, lots of changes. And I think one of the first changes that's really impacted how laboratories function is the change in the remote work rules for pathologists. Mm -hmm. There were some concessions made given the pandemic, and now there have been some new changes. Can you talk a little about that? Right. So prior to the pandemic, if you wanted to do any sort of laboratory work, it had to be at a site with a CLIA license. So that included review of results, interpretation, or signing out cases. It had to be done at a, a site with a CLIA certificate. During the pandemic, CMS used enforcement discretion because they, they wanted people to be physically separated due to the pandemic. And so they allowed for individuals to do remote work, so review of digital data or digital images, interpretation, sign out, without the need for a CLIA certificate. And there's obviously a lot of value to that in that it can help with staff satisfaction, it can help with recruitment. Maybe there's a great cytotech that lives three states over that you'd like to work for you, they're not interested in moving. Having them work remotely is a, is a great option. So when the pandemic ended, that enforcement discretion was also slated to end. However, CMS released a new memo indicating that they would continue with their enforcement discretion. So even post-pandemic, laboratory staff can work remotely, typically from their homes, and do digital data or image review, interpretation, and sign out. Now, there are two requirements that you need to be aware of. One, you need to include the address of the location where review is occurring or a coded comment that can be linked to the address. So basically, you'd have your standard uh, CLIA reporting comment. You know, this, this test was performed at CLIA location XYZ. And then you would have an additional disclaimer. Part of this test was reviewed at location and then the address for the coded comment. So the other requirement then is that a laboratory needs to maintain a list of all their staff who are working remotely. Wow. Okay. So from that perspective, can it be something beyond digital or is it only digital images that are included in this? So CMS explicitly says that things like glass slide review has to be done at a CLIA location. Ah, and okay. Yeah. You can't set up a mass spec in your garage either. So the, the oh. wet <laughs> testing and slide review does need to occur at a location with a CLIA certificate. It's okay. just the review of digital data or digital images. Okay, interesting. Okay, thank you so much. That was news to me. So I think that's really a good thing, though, to make sure that you 
are able to still accommodate some of that remote work, maybe not 100%, but at least somewhat. Correct. So the next thing when I start thinking of the big things that have been, that have been going on that I try and follow a little bit in the, the news, lab develop tests. And I know you've been very active on LinkedIn talking about what's going on with lab develop tests. So maybe you can tell us a little bit, just start with the basics though. What is a lab develop test? Why is this a concern? What's the current process? What's the history and what's the new process and what can labs do and what does it mean for us? Okay, so I'll give you 10 years of history in, in five minutes. How's that sound? Go for it. Go for so, it. I'm ready. So broadly speaking, there are two types of laboratory tests. The first is what's called an in vitro diagnostic or IVD test kit. So this is something that is made in a factory and sold by a, a kit manufacturer to many, many laboratories for use in their, their laboratories. So it's a box with different chemicals and instructions for how to perform the test. The other type of test then is what we call a laboratory developed test or an LDT. So this is a test that is created, validated, and used in a single laboratory. So it's not sold to anybody else. It's used in the lab that created it. So FDA has always had oversight and regulatory authority over IVD test kits. They treat them as medical devices. So those companies need to submit a bunch of information and data to the FDA and receive approval before they can sell their kit. FDA has historically used what they call enforcement discretion over LDTs, meaning the agency claims authority to regulate LDTs, but they have chosen not to over time. The last 10 years, FDA has signaled a change in attitude where they, they want to take a more active role in regulating LDTs. And so they've tried a couple of different approaches. So in 2014, they released a guidance document that was never finalized, so that didn't go anywhere. And then over the last couple of years, they worked with Congress to develop a piece of legislation that you may have heard of called the Valid Act, which again would have given FDA explicit authority to regulate LDTs. That ended up not passing last year, despite two uh, pretty good attempts at it. And so this year, FDA is leveraging the final tool they have in their toolbox, and that is regulations, writing their own regulations. So at the beginning of October, FDA published a proposed rule, draft regulations for LDTs. They're using a process called notice and comment rulemaking, where they'll publish a draft. There's a public comment period. FDA will need to respond to all of those comments, and then the rule would be finalized and published and become regulations. So the regulations are actually pretty straightforward. They basically say LDTs are medical devices now. So that means that whether it's an IVD test kit or an LDT, they'd be treated the same way. FDA would have oversight over them, and they'd all be considered medical devices. So that comment period goes until December 4th. So the draft was published on October 3rd. Comments due December 4th, so there's a 60-day window for comments. I would highly recommend that anyone in the laboratory community strongly consider submitting comments because I think it is very safe to say that transitioning from current state where LDTs are regulated by CLIA and perhaps CAP, New York State, other groups, being regulated by FDA is going to be a significant shift and will likely require a lot of work. There is concern in the community that there are quite a few LDTs that will end up being removed from the market because a given laboratory may decide they don't have the resources or the expertise to go through the FDA approval process. So it is potentially very disruptive. And I'll also note that FDA has signaled that they want to move very quickly on this. So we could see a final rule in first or second quarter of, of next year already. 
FDA does have a four-year transition period. So the first year, laboratories would need to begin submitting adverse events to the FDA. By year two, they would need to register as medical device manufacturers and list information about their LDTs in a public database. Year three, they would need to update their quality system to be compliant with certain elements of what's called GMP or good manufacturing practices. And then year three and a half and four, labs would need to submit all of their existing LDTs to the FDA that are not specifically exempt. So if you have a large LDT test menu, this is going to be a significant lift for your laboratory. So when you think of an LDT, so I think of just using something that's potentially just a little bit off-label. So mm -hmm. testing a fluid by a serum methodology, something like that. Does that fit into the same process? Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if you're starting with a, an, an FDA clear approved kit, but you're making modifications to it such that you're no longer following the manufacturer's instructions. So that's a great example. I've got a kit that's labeled for serum and I'm going to use it on peritoneal fluid because I have a need in my practice for that. You are now an LDT manufacturer and that is an LDT. And so that potentially would need to be submitted to the FDA in a future state. That's kind of a yikes. That's a lot of work. So I wonder how broadly the laboratory community actually understands that. So the comment period is open right now. I think by the time this podcast goes live, it may be closed. So I think that your points, though, you've put some really good points on LinkedIn to say, bring data, make sure that you're actually not just saying, this is awful and we hate it, actually say something that's constructive and contributes really to the message. And I think anytime we're talking to a regulatory body and to the government when the comment period is open to at least make sure that we're providing some constructive and data-driven things, not just an opinion. Yes. And you've been very good at that. I've seen you on airplanes as you've been coming back from meetings on the Hill and, and you have to deal with those folks and communicate regularly. Yes. So we've talked about the remote work for pathologists. We've talked a little bit about the lab developed tests. And the third thing that weighs, of course, on everyone's mind because it impacts our reimbursement is PAMA. Mm -hmm. So thing with PAMA, maybe a little bit on the history, counter proposals, what's going on currently, and what's the future, and what can we do about it? Sure. So PAMA is another one that we've been wrestling with for about 10 years now. So PAMA is the Protecting Access to Medicare Act, which is a, a large bill that has a lot of components. But the, the piece that we're concerned with is it seeks to standardize and streamline reimbursement for laboratory tests. And it seeks to set kind of a standard pricing schedule using a mean reimbursement per test, right? So basically an average cost per test, that is what the government is going to pay for everyone running that test. The problem is the calculation that CMS used to arrive at that average cost was skewed. It was skewed very much in favor of large organizations like large reference laboratories. There were very few, if any, hospital labs that were involved in providing data to set those prices. So of course, when you have a very large laboratory that runs commoditized testing and has economies of scale, their price per test is going to be lower. And so it artificially decreased the price of testing. So such that many laboratories would face you know, 15% plus cut in their reimbursement for a lot of tests, which is just not sustainable. So 
there has been a piece of legislation called SALSA, the Saving Access to Laboratory Services Act, that would seek to address some of those issues with PAMA. Not to do away with PAMA, but to fix the calculations, essentially. So SALSA has been percolating for a couple of years now. The problem, of course, is PAMA wanted to decrease the amount of money that the government pays for lab testing. So to fix that, that by definition means the government will be paying more for laboratory testing. And Congress doesn't typically like paying more for things. And so SALSA has struggled a little bit because th there is an incremental cost to it. And that tends to make Congress unhappy. So what they've ended up doing for the last number of years is they essentially have passed one or two year extensions to the current payment model. So they've essentially deferred the cuts due to PAMA. And it looks like that's going to happen again here this year. So there's a variety of continuing resolutions and, and budget items that are circulating on Capitol Hill. But one that has been pretty consistent is a one-year delay to the PAMA cuts. So basically, we're going to be having this conversation again next year as we once again try to get salsa over the finish line. But hopefully at some point here, there will be a permanent fix because these constant one-year delays are not satisfactory to anybody. You know, the concern is if we miss one of those years, laboratories will get hit with these massive pay cuts on January 1st of the following year. So we, we would really like a permanent fix. Well, and I think the other piece is just the reporting period because is the reporting period, it was the first six months of 2018, is that what the the next the data is? So now here we're working with five year old data, and a lot of organizations have gone through a lot of electronic medical record upgrades and things like that. That data may not even exist. So by changing the reporting methodology, and if I remember right, it was twenty four hospitals. Only twenty four hospitals reported for the first round of PAMA. So clearly, those rates were not made using hospital data. Yep. So if hospitals are now to pull this information, hopefully they've been paying attention over the last few years and have that information, or do we now fast forward and reset a baseline, re reset that time frame, not going to 2018, but perhaps looking at 23 or even 24, depending on what the new regulations hit. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely hitting on it. One of, another one of the challenges with PAMA is the data reporting requirements were very onerous. It was basically give us all of your reimbursement data, which is you know a, a ton of information. And so SALSA is also proposing using basically uh, selections of data rather than all of your data to kind of address that. Because even if a hospital you know today wanted to provide that information, they probably don't have the resources to gather it all, to your point. Right, right. Okay. So there's hope, hope in sight, at least we're going to have, fingers crossed, a reprieve for this upcoming year. But I think, Shannon, the messaging that you're bringing when you're talking to our leaders in government and saying, you know, come on, guys, the hospital labs are important. You're really doing a, a good job. So I encourage you to do that. But my last question for you uh, along this line is, what can a regular everyday lab person do to make sure that we are getting our own voices out? Do we all need to be at Capitol Hill? Are there things that we can do locally to influence policy? And what, what are your suggestions? My first suggestion would be leverage your professional societies. You know, there are all kinds of professional societies for lab. And I think most, if not all of them, have a legislative outreach function. 
I know a lot of groups will do like a hill day where they'll bring members up to the hill and kind of shepherd them around to, to relevant members of Congress to talk about lab and, and things like that. So I think professional societies are a great way to, to stay involved. If your institution is large enough, you may have a, a government relations team. So make sure that you're interfacing with them um, so that they can advocate on behalf of lab. And then certainly don't underestimate your power as an individual citizen. You know, you can certainly write your Congress folks. If you have concerns about FDA regulation, for example, Congress is paying very close attention to the LDT issue. We could see the Valid Act resurrected in the future. It's entirely possible. So I think just getting involved any way you can is important. Sure. Okay. And then when you write a letter, don't just complain. Be specific. Bring data. Nice. (laughs) All all of that stuff. And perhaps help them understand why it's to their advantage to listen to this different opinion, right? You know, the the one silver lining to the pandemic is everybody in the country knows what a clinical lab is now because we were so integral to, you know, helping the country get through the pandemic. So I think we absolutely need to leverage that now to share, you know, we don't just do COVID testing, right? We do a lot of other really important work. So, you know, helping the public, helping helping Congress really understand the critical role lab plays in the healthcare universe. Absolutely. I, I could not have said it better. So Shannon, as you might remember, I always close with one rapid fire question. And my rapid fire question for you today is, what are your favorite sources of information, things that are easy to understand, easy to access so people can learn more? Everybody has a newsletter these days. So my first piece of advice is find a couple that are routinely useful to you and stick with them. Because otherwise, your inbox will fill up with newsletters that are not useful for you. So try to focus on a couple. I use 360DX quite a bit. They're kind of a view of what's happening across the industry. From an FDA perspective, Agency IQ has a very nice free daily newsletter where they talk about what's going on with FDA. And then again, professional societies all typically have some sort of a newsletter, whether it be weekly, monthly, quarterly. That's another great way to stay in touch with what's going on um, in the lab industry. Fantastic. And yeah, there's there's way too much information. So just knowing where to start and how to filter it out is a really good tip. Thank you so much. So that brings us quickly to the end of our time. This is going to be an annual event. Certainly appreciate you being here. And I hope that our audience also has gained some new information related to what's going on in the regulatory world for laboratory. And truly, this will ensure that our labs are providing ultimately the highest quality service to the patients in their communities. So Shannon, thanks again for being with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Leveraging the Laboratory, which is a podcast from Mayo Clinic Laboratories. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. And until next time, we encourage you to continue to promote your community-based hospital laboratory because the needs of your patients come first.